You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Quick, you're out for a stroll in the savannah and you see an approaching lion. What do you do? Run for the hills? I mean, if there are any hills in the savannah. Or do you stay and fight? Well, adrenaline prepares you to make a quick decision. For example, if you're a professional lion wrestler with a high success rate in pinning beasts, you might stay and attempt a half Nelson. Alternatively, you could make a run for it. Our biology has honed itself over millions of years to be highly adaptive in stressful situations, but sometimes we need a technological boost. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode, the technology of defense. While military research looks for new means to help keep soldiers safe, we learn that one protective strategy has a longer history than thought, much longer. Insects created their own DIY camouflage a hundred million years ago. But where will this technological arc lead? We peek into the future plans of the military's top secret defense agency. When you think of military research, you probably picture efforts to develop directed energy beams or other high-tech weaponry, maybe improved armor for vehicles or troops. But there's still a vulnerable human being wearing that upgraded flak jacket, so some of that research is focused on keeping soldiers intact, alert, and if possible, reasonably comfortable. Writer Mary Roach is drawn to this personal side of military research when the biggest foes for a GI may be heat loud noise, or intestinal trouble. I think that most people, because we're all sweating and we all hate dealing with flies and everyone gets diarrhea, so I think I'm mining a kind of a a broader interest in these things. I like to think I'm not the only person who finds them interesting. As she reminds us in her book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, a soldier's physical well-being is not only a key factor in winning battles, but is constantly being pushed to its limits. So she's investigated human factors research, how the military scientists and engineers are trying to improve the safety and effectiveness of our troops. She visited a number of military research facilities and, Mary Roach style, even volunteered to take the stress tests given to soldiers. At the Consortium for Health and Military Performance in Bethesda, Maryland, for example, she donned a backpack and took a hike in the heat. The topic was heat injury, including heat stroke, which people die of. And particularly people who are uh, wearing heavy, hot body armor, carrying a heavy load, and exerting themselves in 110 degree heat. So um, heat stroke is, is, is a real concern among deployed troops. So what was going on, they have a cook box. It's this box that they can set the humidity and the heat and make it just god-awful in there for you. There's a treadmill, so they can make it even more god-awful, put it on an incline, then throw on some body armor and a pack the, the point of all this, they were, tr- they were looking for way to differentiate people who are really susceptible to heat injury because so, there's a tremendous amount of individual difference. Some people cope 
really well with heat and other people don't and tend to collapse and how heavy was your backpack i mean what what were they doing to you okay it wasn't it was pre- really pretty wimpy it was 30 pounds which how, is about a third of what you would could expect to be carrying if you had a, a backpack and you were carrying, say, like running across a courtyard with a machine gun. You would be carrying 100 pounds or more, including body armor. So my load was, you know, this is a, not even a heavy backpacking load, and I think I lasted seven minutes. Jeepers. Well, an interesting point here is that one of the military guys that was kind of showing you around was sweating a lot more than you were, and you jumped to the conclusion that you were more heat tolerant than he was. Exactly. He you know, very quickly sort of became wet and kind of bedraggled. And I thought, whoa, he looks like he's really struggling over there. And the researcher explained to me, the more acclimated you are to heat, the better your, you know, the better your body is coping with it, the quicker and the more heavily you perspire, because that's, of course, your body's way of cooling you down. So they were adjusted to the heat. And meanwhile, my body is there kind of going, oh, it's a little uncomfortable, and then eventually started sweating. But by that time, I'm flushed and uh, about ready to drop the pack. Well, they also evaluated the odor of your sweat. I think it, it apparently was not unpleasant. They weren't, <laughs> but they weren't trying to determine whether you practice, I don't know, uh, socially acceptable hygiene. What were they doing? Why did they care? Well, we're moving now over to Monell Chemical Senses Center. Chemical Senses, of course, being smell and taste. And this was a project to see if you, because when you are stressed, you exude on your breath, in your sweat, certain telltale odors. And they were looking at the feasibility of identifying somebody who's very stressed out, identifying that person by either their breath or their sweat smell. I think at Monell, they termed it onion garlic hoagie. That's the descriptor for when you are very stressed out and nervous and afraid. So the kind of research that you were being exposed to was, in fact, applied research, military research. I mean, their interest is in the military as opposed to civilian applications. Right. The heat injury study was the idea would be to come up with some sort of a marker, whether it's something in the blood or some way to identify people who are particularly susceptible to heat stroke and to identify them, keep an eye on them when you're someplace hot or not, or not put them into a situation where they're going to be sweating heavily and it's hot and they're carrying a heavy load. So it would be a way, you know, a way of identifying particularly susceptible soldiers. The smell work, the stress work, the Air Force was looking into putting some sort of a sensor in in a mouthpiece for measuring stress levels via breath, and they could put that in a helmet. So it's, a mil- it's military research that may well, like so much military research, find its way to some civilian application. Well, speaking of voters, it kind of surprised me to read that the military has a long history of trying to engineer bad smells. What's the tactical benefit of stinky liquids? I mean, how could soldiers use bottles of stinky liquid anyhow? Well, the the original, I, I say stink bomb, but it really isn't a stink bomb. This is this was um, the, the original foul smelling substance with a military use was uh, World War, well, the, the, the one I focused on, I think there's some even dating way, way back further, which I didn't touch on. But in World War II, the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, the, uh, Stanley Lovell, the director of research, had this idea. Uh, he was looking for uh, cheap and subtle items, I was going to weapons, but not really, things to give to res- resistance groups in occupied countries that they could then sort of sidle up to an officer, say a German officer, and, and, and this was a, a stink paste, and then and there were, they would, you would squeeze it, this little tube, and squirt this very foul-smelling odor onto the man's jacket or uniform, and, it, and they had designed it to be maximally penetrative, lastingly penetrative, that it would not wash off in rain or with dry cleaning solvents, that it would stay smelly for, I think it was two hours at 70 degrees Fahrenheit, that it would have no backfire, that it, they had designed it like a weapon. It had all these specifications. They had a tremendous amount of difficulty with um, with backfire. You would squirt the tube and the, the, the stuff would come out the back and it would foul the operator. And so it was, the, and there's a whole, fu- this huge file for this smelly substance, basically. There's in the, in the National Archives, there's, I, I had this correspondence file in the back and forth about, you know, I tried some of this. We put a military uniform on a dummy in the office, and seven out of 10 of the tubes were leaking before we even began. And the third one was sprayed all over my hand. And there's this angry letters back and forth. And that two years this project 
kind of dragged on. And but I mean, the idea was to, to make humiliate, it, to humiliate, yeah, to, yeah. to make this officer ineffective yes. or less effective or something. Yeah, to, like. to humiliate them, to for them to be ostracized. To, I mean, it was a very subtle sort of morale, you know, trying to to lower the morale. You know, it's it, I, I I was endlessly amazed at how much time and effort went into, and it was never deployed. So it's just very surreal, the kind of strange Dr. Strangelove scenario playing out. Mary, you're often quite playful with material that, frankly, is sometimes pretty grim. I mean, we're talking about war here. Was that difficult for you? I mean, you're, you're, you know, the subtext here is always a fairly serious one. Yeah, no, it was it was difficult in that, first of all, it's, it's sensitive material talking about, and I mean, setting aside the military and their nefarious purposes, it was just, uh, it's a sensitive topic when you're dealing with people whose lives are threatened and whose lives are damaged by having been in combat. So you, the humor and the, you know, I, I am a funny writer, but I try, you know, I, the humor tends to be around, you know, like the stench soup and the, the historical chapters, or I'm trying to direct the humor at, at myself as the kind of clueless outsider that I really and truly was for the, for the whole two years that I, I did this book. One of the problems of combat is that it's noisy. Hearing loss is common among the soldiery, and apparently it doesn't take a long exposure to loud noises to produce it. That was a surprise. That was a surprise to me. I didn't realize the importance of the the duration of one's exposure. For example, 85 decibels, which would be like a loud restaurant or a, you know traffic, you can be exposed to that for about eight hours before you start to run any risk of hearing damage. But if you go from 85 decibels up to, say, 120, now you're talking about a very brief exposure. Like 100, I think it's something like 115 decibels, which is you know very like a chainsaw, half a half a minute. You can only you can only be exposed to that half a minute before you're sort of putting your your hearing at risk, and that's 115. Now you go to an M16 rifle, 160 decibel, like a fr just the one one shot can cause incremental damage. I mean, there's a lot of individual difference. That's one of the things they're finding. Some people are much more susceptible to hearing damage, noise-induced hearing damage, and people think it's bombs and weapons going off, and and that is part of it. But the vehicles that the military travel around in are very loud. Like, I think it was like a Black Hawk helicopter, something like 103 decibels. And, and you know, once you get over 80, 85 to 90, you're in the kind of danger zone. And so if you're you're on that thing for a few hours without hearing protection, that's it's going to cause some damage. So, but the, the, the conundrum here is that you want to protect soldiers' ears, but on the other hand, if they're in a kinetics, in other words, people are shooting at you, and you need to have a situational awareness. Who's who's shooting? Where are they? Who? What do you? Where are you? Where's everybody going? What are we doing? And you've got these big ear cuffs on. You can't hear someone talking to you or yelling at you. So they tend to not wear their hearing because they'd rather they'd rather save their lives than save their hearing. Well, the military used to do a lot of basic research, and that kind of ended in the Vietnam War era when you know students you know were protesting about having the military on campus funding basic research. Does this change any attitudes about that? Do you think? I don't know. I think people uh, people approach the military as this sort of monolith. If I learned one thing about the military is that there is no military. There are, there's the Army, the Navy, the Marines, but beyond that, there's the bureaucrats, and then there's the researchers and the scientists and the medical people, and you form a, a different opinion about all of those, and you, you don't really have this sort of one sort of black and white sense of the military anymore, or I didn't. You know, that, that causes me to ask a general lament that you notice, and that is that the, the soldiers would often complained that there was some middle-aged guy back in an air-conditioned office somewhere who was deciding how they were going to fight, and usually his solution to their problems was to add more technology onto their backs, including the batteries. Yes. Meanwhile, they're back in the desert, you know, sweating to carry this stuff around. Is there sort of a resentment toward these pointy-headed uh, academic types? I think there's there's misunderstanding on both sides because the two don't ever come together and sit down and have lunch and, and talk about what they do and the feedback doesn't make its way where it necessarily needs to. They're both they're both trying to do their job. The resentment that I heard about was more just a frustration of having to move quickly, not be heard sometimes, and to try to do that with the amount of equipment they're carrying and like you said 
the extra batteries and the, you know, and even something like Velcro, which makes a loud noise, sort of like when you open it, can give away someone's position. You're sort of clanking around. And as one guy pointed out to me, you know, the, the, the enemy is, is running around in a, in a simple outfit and sandals with a, with a rifle, and you are burdened by sometimes 100 pounds of gear. But then again, you know, if you don't, have the, if you don't give them body armor, I mean, then lives are lost. They could have been saved. So it's a, it's a continual kind of back and forth of how much gear do we give them with the aim of keeping them alive, but at what point do you start adding risk by slowing them down or making them overheat? And that's a hard thing to answer. Mary Roach, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks. Mary Roach is the author of Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. While the military does research to keep soldiers safe, it's really building on defensive strategies that nature has evolved for millions of years. Find out how scientists discovered that insects in the time of the dinosaurs were masters of do-it-yourself camouflage. Also, the future of defense. Can we engineer super soldiers that don't need sleep or who have superhero strength? It's On Defense from Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The military has been developing technologies to protect soldiers, well, ever since troops first assembled on a battlefield. Some are both straightforward and effective. The use of camouflaged clothing to blend in with woodland or desert surroundings, for example. The green modeled battle dress uniform was first introduced in World War II, so it's been around for a while. But insects have practiced the art of disguise for a much longer time. Now you see them. But soon, you won't. The enemy is approaching. I must render myself inconspicuous to its visual receptors. What shall I use? Ah, these grains of sand. I must reach around uh, to my wing and affix them. Oh, and some plant residue will do nicely on my antennae. Takes a bit of dexterity, but there. I'm ready for anything. Oops, I should turn off my phone. Some insect species that aren't born with body coloring or patterning that lets them blend in have created DIY disguises to foil predators. Some of those camouflaging insects have been spotted, however, by an international team of researchers, including entomologist Michael Engel of the University of Kansas, who discovered, encased in Cretaceous amber, a variety of insects, such as lacewings, and the debris they used to disguise themselves. That means they were building their own camo, and that this complex behavior is at least 100 million years old. You can see, obviously, the organism that you're looking at, and many times there's associated elsewhere in the matrix inside of the amber as well, various organic or inorganic debris items. And that's pretty common. But what's uncommon is when it is very clear that these have been purposely placed upon the organism itself, and there are actually structures on the organism's body that are specific to hold these items over the animal's integument. So what you're saying is that this debris didn't just happen to be in the vicinity of the insect when it got immolated in amber, but it was collected by the insect for some reason. 
Absolutely. It's very clear that the insects had gone about in their surroundings and selectively collected materials that they could then attach to portions of their body so as to conceal themselves from above. And it's very clear that they actually did this because it's attached to particular structures that are holding these items to the body surface and only on the portions of the body that the animal wanted concealed. So for example, their bellies aren't actually concealed. It's only sort of the backside on many of them that is actually being concealed and where the structures that are holding the debris elements to the actual insect are located. So what you're describing is that these insects were collecting this material for camouflage. Well, what kind of material were they using for that? I mean, what what constituted good camouflage for these guys? Well, different individuals were using different materials, and certainly different species were using different materials because we found a whole range of unrelated insect species that were doing this similar convergent uh, behavior. And so in the case of some of the lacewings, for example, they were using a very specific type of fern fragment to cover their bodies. Some were using little pieces of dirt, and so it was a, a variety of Uh, materials that they were collecting from their environment to place upon their bodies. One material they apparently used is sand, but how did they do that? I mean, if they're just burying themselves in the sand, I I would say that's not camouflage. Maybe you would, but what were they doing with the sand? In the same way, collecting it and actually attaching it to their body. And so you're absolutely right. It would be one thing if they were just burying themselves in the sand and then hunkering down there in order to kind of uh, wait it out. But instead, it's clear that they have actual modifications of their body. So body structures that come out and actually form baskets um, with little hairs and little branched structures that are there to kind of entrap, ensnare, and hold these materials over certain portions of the body. And so that's a fundamentally different behavior, and that's a fundamentally different biology than simply getting a bunch of stuff stuck on you as you crawl into a particular space or burrow into the ground. So I assume that they're doing this to protect themselves, or are they doing it as a means of ambushing their dinner? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, In each of these cases, these were predatory insects. So on the one hand, they are concealing themselves to protect themselves from an environment that's filled with predators that are seeking that actual insect. So there are early birds, reptiles, various other mammals, insectivorous mammals at the time, who were certainly going about and eating these insects, just like modern counterparts eat their modern relatives today. But for the lacewings, for example, they were collecting a lot of their materials to cover their bodies and seek out their prey as well as protect themselves. And we know this because their modern relatives do exactly that. It's sort of the wolf in sheep's clothing approach to predation, whereby modern lacewing larvae will collect similar sort of materials from their environment, conceal their body, and then they use this to gradually approach their aphid prey undetected. So this is pretty complex behavior. At least it sounds that way to me. I mean, you know, scavenging camouflage from the environment and using it against, well, whatever's going to try and eat you. I mean, it means these insects perhaps were smart enough, or maybe that's the wrong way to approach it, but smart enough to recognize what sort of debris to use and, and to fashion this kind of defense. Absolutely. I mean, certainly this indicates that they must have had some sort of capability of recognizing that this particular item is this fern. And so therefore, that's what I'm looking to try and put on my back to kind of anthropomorphize it a bit. But it certainly takes a great deal of neural complexity in order to go about and make all of these decisions and behavioral actions today and certainly at that time period as well. Well, the Cretaceous. Okay, end of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. Is this the earliest example we have of the evolution of camouflage? Yes. As a matter of fact, that was one of the interesting aspects of this, is this was the earliest uh, definitive evidence of sort of camouflaging behavior. As you can imagine, behaviors are, or many behaviors at least, are sort of ephemeral. And, you know, if I wave my hand at you, it 100 million years later, that behavior has disappeared and is no longer discernible by some future paleontologist looking at my remains. So in order to actually find sort of concrete evidence of behaviors is really quite an interesting aspect of paleontology. At least some of these insects apparently used as their camouflage the exoskeleton 
of other insects. I mean, that's kind of amazing, not only for the resourcefulness and recycling their their neighbors, but also that you'd have to be pretty sure to use the exoskeleton of an insect that was not itself a prey item. Well, actually, many of those, what they would do is they would actually use the remains of their victims and then pack it onto their backs, thereby chemically and sort of tactily taking on the disguise of their prey as they then approached other individuals. And so that's sort of the wolves in sheep's clothing approach to predation, whereby they're literally taking the sheep, packing them on their back, and then approaching the other sheep going, hey, don't pay any attention to me, and next thing you know, gotcha. Well, your team concluded, I mean, this is such an elaborate behavior, your team concluded that they evolved this behavior through convergent evolution. And uh, convergent evolution, well, maybe you should explain what that means here. Yeah, in sort of a layman's nutshell, it's basically the independent, repeated evolution of a particular structure or behavior or even biology or physiology um, multiple times among unrelated groups. So in this case, we have lacewings, assassin bugs, owl flies, these unrelated insect groups that are independently converging or independently arriving at the same solution to a particular problem. This demonstrates a high degree of evolutionary plasticity, but does this say anything about insect brains? Um, well, again, the plasticity is referring to sort of the, the fact that this is appearing multiple times in evolution, and it's popping up in unrelated groups as a sort of a common solution to a shared problem. As to what it says about insect brains, I don't know if this example per se speaks to insect brains as a whole, but overall, what we know is that insects, although we tend to think of them with such minute neural architecture, so few neurons relative to, say, the human brain and everything, what it really shows is that you can be profoundly intelligent and do profound things with comparatively little actual neurons. And so it doesn't take a lot to be really, really smart. And these insects were clearly very smart, and they knew how to live and succeed in their environment, uh, just as insects are succeeding today. After all, they do dominate life on this planet. Yeah, well, it doesn't take a lot to be very, very smart. I I find that an encouraging sentiment. (laughs) Yes. Well, Michael, finally... You know, we're introducing, when I say we, I mean homo sapiens, we're introducing all sorts of materials into the environment, many of which are widespread. Uh, I just wondered, have you found any examples of insects using, I don't know, little pieces of styrofoam or something else human-made in their attempts to avoid being uh, caught and eaten? Absolutely. Uh, It happens probably more often than you think and probably in most people's homes. And it, it really depends on particular insect species. Some insect species are looking for very specific things. For example, a lacewing that is packing its prey items on its back isn't going to accidentally pick up a piece of styrofoam and stick it on its back. It knows how to recognize its prey. It knows it's just eaten this thing, and it knows now that it's going to put it on its back. However, there are those that are basically trying to just look like trash. And there are a lot of little bugs, true bugs, Some occur in our homes, and they like to pick up dust or any other debris that they kind of find sitting around. It doesn't even have to be anything particular. It just has to be characteristic of the environment in which they're occurring. And then they'll cover themselves with those things so as to just blend into the general environment. And there are examples of insects that will run around your house, and they'll pick up you know, little bits of paper or little bits of just the dust or the debris from your hair or whatever they can find that's coming off of our activities to kind of cover themselves up. I just wish they would do more of that, I have to say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Michael Engel, thank you so very, very much for speaking with us. It was my pleasure. Michael Engel is an entomologist and invertebrate paleontologist at the University of Kansas and senior curator of its Natural History Museum. Clearly, biological evolution has its own arms race, but we as biological beings have taken this to a new level. So where's it going next? Well, we heard earlier about ways that the military studies the limits of physical endurance to better protect soldiers. But what if those limits could be radically extended? 
The military's top research organization, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, didn't always include biologists. According to journalist Annie Jacobson, they were brought into the Pentagon in the late 1990s. And for the first time, these scientists began studying the workings of the human body. For her book, The Pentagon's Brain, An Uncensored History of DARPA, America's Top Secret Military Research Agency, Annie Jacobson interviewed scientists who were working on previously classified programs in the Vietnam and Gulf Wars and drew on unclassified documents to show where this research is headed. So, as to the question of whether DARPA could create super soldiers? Yes, and this is not a hope. This actually has been done, is being done, and will continue to be done. I would argue that it is the the new blue sky research domain. I mean, the advances that DARPA has led in biotechnology, information technology, and nanotechnology have allowed for some of the most amazing programs inside the human body, inside the human brain, that most of America really does not know about. Well, you're writing about the vision to create maybe what you could call a super soldier, soldiers who don't have the physical or physiological or, for that matter, cognitive limitations that uh, we do. Can you give me an example of the sort of thing you're talking about there? Yes. Well, what DARPA has been working on is creating what is called a human-machine dyad. So that sounds like something out of RoboCop, but this is very serious decades-old research at this point where they're mixing humans and machines so that you have an order of magnitude increase in the network soldier. So in other words, the soldier, if the soldier has machinery, computer technology inside the soldier, then imagine the ability to interface with a computer system. Well, if I understand what you're saying correctly, what they're going to do is they're going to allow computers to send signals to the soldiers. In other words, they have implanted uh, chips or something so that the computers can monitor their physiology, but also to modify it? Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Back in 1999, think how long ago this was in terms of technology. DARPA did its first biological computer interface system with a rat, and they implanted a chip in the rat's brain, and then DARPA scientists were able to wirelessly control this rat and steer it through a maze, okay? Now that has advanced to such a degree that in 2014, DARPA scientists did this same system with a moth. So they wanted to look at what it would be like to have a flying animal that was could be controlled, could be steered. And they did this successfully. Researchers at North Carolina State University, they implanted an electrode into the pupa stage of the Mandica sexta moth. And when the transformation happened and the moth became a moth, the electrodes had implanted into the tissue of this, of this moth. And DARPA scientists were able to actually steer the Mantica sexta moth in flight. So if you can imagine that where science has gone from 1999 with a four-legged creature to 2014, with a flying moth. You can imagine where we are now with humans. And these are the kind of research programs that DARPA is working on that I do find in my reporting to be controversial, by the way, because they involve human soldiers and they involve some brain-machine interfaces that have some potentially complicated consequences. Well, okay, so you're talking about cognitive enhancements. What about things like, for example, sleep or or fear or things like that? Are those other areas where you might want to change the behavior of our soldiers? DARPA has been working on that for decades as well. Those programs, some of them are called, for example, persistence in combat or the mechanically dominant soldier. And that's this idea that if you have a soldier who can work 24-7 on little or no sleep, you're going to have an extreme advantage against the enemy. And so scientists are looking at things like, well, usually they look at animals. They'll look at whales and dolphins and say, you know, these mammals don't sleep. They would drown if they did. What do they do? Oh, they have, they, they switch lobes so that they're able to kind of, part of the brain can rest while the other lobe of the brain is allowing the mammal to swim. And DARPA's trying to emulate these ideas to see if there is an, a way in which to apply this mother nature technology, if you will, to advanced 
you know, nanobiotechnology to help soldiers in this area. They're also looking at bears, for example, to see if you can essentially allow a soldier to hibernate and then be able to go and work 24-7. Are they doing this with no more intervention than putting, if you will, electronic interfaces in the soldier? Or do they also use genetic change or, or for that matter, drugs? I mean, is any of it being done at the biological level? Most definitely biological drugs. It's called psychopharmacology or pharmacology in, at the Pentagon, and that's being looked at. For example, the sleep program we were talking about. DARPA was working for a while with, with this drug called modafinil. It's something that people who have narcolepsy take. So in other words, imagine if you're someone who falls asleep you know, at the wheel. Um, these are powerful drugs, and they were giving these to soldiers, but the consequences of that were extreme. I mean, there's a real sort of, you know, adrenaline dump afterwards after you take a, a drug. And likewise, DARPA has been looking at a drug called oxytocin developed by a researcher here in California who found, located what he called the brain's moral molecule. And this is the molecule in the brain that, you know, administers trust. So DARPA is looking at how to manipulate trust so that soldiers can overcome fear. Well, then finally, the big question here, if DARPA succeeds, if they can produce the uber soldiers of the future, then we have, if you will, almost a different species here on Earth that is a superior fighting force. I mean, there are obvious worries there about the danger to civil society. And it's a whole debate that people, you know, on both sides have strong opinions about. It's generally called transhumanism. You know, is, are we meant to evolve ourselves? Are we meant to speed up Mother Nature's, you know, billions of year process by the technologies that we humans have created with our brains? I mean, boy, is that a philosophical existential question. I don't have the answer. Well, I... I guess we're going to learn what the answer is or experience it one way or another. Annie Jacobson, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Annie Jacobson is a journalist and the author of The Pentagon's Brain, An Uncensored History of DARPA, America's top-secret military research agency. Well, we're riding the wave of technological evolution, but is our defense solely dependent on what we can build? In fact, we have a bit of innate chemical weaponry that gives us an edge in a dangerous world. How your fight-or-flight impulse protects you next. It's On Defense from Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. As our technology for defense evolves, we might be reminded that we're not solely dependent on sophisticated hardware to get out of a sticky situation. We do have an innate, a built-in defense system, one that helped Dr. Brian Hoffman a few years ago. He was on his bike, pedaling along a narrow road in California. Kind of a scary one because there was no shoulder. And a driver came within inches of hitting me and was honking his horn. California drivers, it's as if they've never seen a bicycle. They're nuts. Then I foolishly tapped my helmet to indicate you're nuts. And he spotted me in his rear view mirror, pulled over and said, you're going down. So he started walking towards me and I balanced on my bicycle for about 30 seconds to give him time to get farther and farther from his car. And then Brian turned in the opposite direction and took off. A couple of miles away, there was a park with a lot of people. And so I thought if he pursued me, I might be able to make it there. The driver pursued him. In those days, I was an enthusiastic exerciser, so I had a heart rate monitor and a speedometer on my bicycle. 
and I found myself uh, going about 30 miles an hour, which was a good bit faster than I normally could. I guess I could get up to about 26 miles an hour. Go, Brian, go! And my heart rate was just about at the theoretical maximum for my age. Brian Hoffman made it safely to the park. He says he hasn't reached that speed on a bicycle since, and that his escape from almost certain injury may be thanks to the release of a hormone in his body. Dr. Hoffman, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, has written a book, Adrenaline, about the discovery of the molecule that drives some of our most intense experiences. It gave him an edge back then, but not necessarily the yellow jersey. There can be a certain percentage augmentation but no shot of adrenaline would have allowed me to keep up for even a couple of miles in the mountains with the Tour de France contestants. That's beyond my capacity. Earlier, journalist Annie Jacobson said that one negative consequence of engineering soldiers to stay awake indefinitely is the unwanted triggering of an exhausting adrenaline dump. It's not a hormone we want to mess with. Dr. Hoffman says that balance, just like on a bicycle, is key. The adrenal glands have two parts. The outer cortex produces the hormones cortisol and aldosterone, and the inner part, the adrenal medulla, makes adrenaline. Too much or too little of any of these adrenal hormones for an extended period can make us ill. Some animals always opt for the flight in the fight-or-flight response, say a rabbit encountering, well, just about any other animal. Humans, on the other hand, have a prefrontal cortex that has the ability to reason. We might stay and fight a lion, or we might run. Either way, adrenaline is there to give us a boost. Yes, no, the brain is is the thinking force behind what should we do, but adrenaline is designed to augment our responses. So the capacity of our heart to pump blood to rapidly exercising muscles is greatly enhanced. Fuel in the blood to feed exercising muscles is enhanced. Our eyes get wider, perhaps to help us see better. Our lungs may open up a bit to allow air to come in and out quickly as we exercise. So adrenaline augments all these responses that are very important in exercise. And it's, for example, adrenaline and related drugs are largely banned from Olympic competition with certain exceptions in asthmatics because they may augment physical capacity. However, the changes that occur, while may be critical in life or death situations to escape an adversary, are not the sort of changes that would allow a 97-pound pencil neck person to lift a car off a pinned uh, baby. And yet that's the image that we have, right? The popular image, perhaps, that adrenaline can give you superhuman strength for feats such as that. Yes, there's no scientific evidence to support that. The physiological effects are important, but not at that scale. Well, Brian, what is adrenaline? It, it is a hormone, but I mean, is it a liquid? I guess it's a liquid. If, if you had a vial of it, what would you see in the vial? Uh, it would probably be a crystal. So it's a very small molecule. It's um, a modified amino acid. It's in solution. It's synthesized in the adrenal gland, the inner part of the adrenal gland called the medulla. It's synthesized from uh, an amino acid, and then it sits in, uh, in solution in granules in the adrenal gland, waiting for a signal from the brain to say, pour it out into the blood. And the adrenal glands are so named because they lie below the kidney. So adrenal or adrenal below the kidney. Is that right? I took two years of Latin in in high school, but I think it's above the kidneys or or near the kidneys. And and in fact, this is why they weren't noticed by ancient anatomists, because the glands looked similar to fat. They simply couldn't see them. Yes, they were buried in the fat, and they were discovered in uh, the 16th century in Italy and had been missed for thousands of years. So what do the glands look like? They're very small, kind of yellowish because the adrenal cortex has a lot of cholesterol in it because it's the way it makes its hormones. So they're fairly inconspicuous and were thought to have no known importance until Thomas Edison 
in uh, uh, London Teaching Hospital in the 1850s had some patients with some very strange symptoms, including their skin getting much darker, they're getting very fatigued, losing weight, vomiting a great deal, and he followed a number of these patients until they died, did autopsies, and the only thing that was wrong was that their adrenal glands were shriveled up. So he proposed that diseases of the adrenal glands that destroy their function are not compatible with life, and we we call that disease Addison's disease today. In fact, you, you write in the book that it's important to have a balance within the adrenal system. I guess that's true for just about any system within our body, but too much adrenaline is a problem and not enough is is also a problem. Well, too much is definitely a problem. The most extreme example of that is a tumor of the adrenal medulla called a pheochromocytoma, which are rare tumors that secrete excessive amounts of adrenaline in an unregulated way. The adrenaline is released from the tumor independent of whether the brain thinks we need any adrenaline released or not. And those, those high concentrations of adrenaline can cause severe high blood pressure and can damage the heart. It can be um, fatal in many cases if not diagnosed and then uh, removed surgically. Is the point that if you're in a stressful situation, the adrenal system is involved in some way? Yes. Or can you have stress but not have an adrenal response? Uh, Typically, I imagine there could be types of stress that wouldn't lead to the secretion of adrenaline. Again, the brain is very complicated. There are some experimental situations where stressed animals and possibly humans respond to stress by withdrawing and becoming very inactive. And there's a complementary nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system, which tends on the whole to quiet everything down. So some people can respond to stress that way. For example, when someone faints with stress, that's uh, where this parasympathetic nervous system may have a predominant role compared to the adrenaline system. So just to be clear, the adrenaline is part of the automatic nervous system And the automatic nervous system includes the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. But but the adrenal glands are really working on the sympathetic nervous system, which revs you up or increases your blood pressure. And the parasympathetic nervous system, the one that lowers blood pressure that maybe calms you down, if that's the right way to put it, that's regulated by another, another set of hormones? Yes, by the brain as well. A good way to think about it might be you're in a car that's parked on the sidewalk. And if the ignition is off and a carjacker comes running at you, it's going to take time for you to, uh, you know, put the key in the ignition, turn the car on, and try to get out of the way. So these systems evolved in ancient evolution. They're possessed by all our uh, relatives who are mammals. And so it's set up to really respond quickly. So it's as though we have the car on all the time and we have a foot on the accelerator and a foot on the brake so that when something happens, like uh, you need to run, the accelerator gets pushed even harder and the foot comes off the brake so that uh, the response is almost uh, instantaneous and very vigorous. So we have these two opposing systems tugging in opposite directions all the time. And you can manipulate them with drugs. So you can use a drug that will boost your adrenaline system, but you can also use something that can calm you down. For example, it's used with musicians so they don't have tremors where they try to play publicly, and maybe even for soldiers who are trying to keep a steady hand. Yes, so uh, you're quite right. These are, uh, it's again a Greek word, beta, beta receptor blockers. Adrenaline has its effect by activating proteins that sit on the surface of cells, and there are a variety of different locks that adrenaline can fit into. And one of the locks is, are, are called beta receptors, and those receptors that, for example, get our hearts to beat very rapidly and, and forcefully. So in clinical medicine, drugs have been developed to block out those effects. 
So beta blocker drugs are very good in, um, say, treating somebody who has disease of the coronary arteries that prevent enough blood from getting to the heart muscle. So when someone like that gets excited, if their heart starts beating rapidly and forcefully, the oxygen needs of the heart muscle go up, and that can precipitate chest pain. So it blocks those out, and those were developed to treat disease, but uh, they've quickly had many other applications. And as you point out, it's uh, relatively common for musicians, professionally musicians, to use them because... There are beta receptors that can increase uh, tremor, which is uh, disastrous for a violinist, and apparently snipers in um, military forces use them so that they can space their shots between slower heartbeats and have less tremor. And in fact, those drugs are banned from the Olympics in shooting sports like riflery and archery, and the contestants have been uh, have lost their their Olympic medals because they cheated with those drugs, which at that level of competition have very significant effects. Brian Hoffman, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's been my uh, pleasure, Molly, and thank you for inviting me. Brian Hoffman is a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and author of Adrenaline. Well, clearly in times of stress, adrenaline floods our blood, giving us the enhanced abilities that might save our lives, keeping ourselves in the gene pool. Adrenaline's a result of evolution for four billion years. You know, our defenses have been limited to what Darwinian selection provided, even if that was pretty nifty stuff, like insects that make their own camouflage. But we've gone beyond our innate defenses with technology. Mary Roach, she tells us about schemes to deal with fatigue and even noise on the battlefield, noise that could mess up vital communications. However, Annie Jacobson points out that there's no obvious endpoint to how far we can go to augment human abilities. And that makes me wonder if fight or flight will inevitably skew to fight. We want to thank the members of the team who remain cool under the pressure of show production, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the episode on defense. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find lots of episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because it's less stressful, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you listen to the show via iTunes, we invite you to leave a review on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, well, email them all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Today I'll need something more crafty to evade detection by my human predators. Plenty of material in this trash bin. Ah, inspiration dark carpet fuzz to create eyebrows and a mustache, and ah, this garbage bag twist tie. A quick turn here and there, and it becomes a pair of glasses. Now I blend.